Good morning. Uh, this morning we'll explore some bringing our metta practice from the retreat uh, into our daily lives. And I'll give a uh, talk shorter than the usual Dharma talk, um, maybe, maybe about 25, 30 minutes. And then we'll have um, a chunk of time to talk together, really to ask questions or to um, reflect in whatever way you wish uh, with all of us up here. And then in the uh, last part of the uh, morning session, we'll, in in a few different ways, uh, uh, really close the container of the retreat and end it in a very, hopefully, sweet way proper meta spirit. <laughs> so, and we'll finish uh, right at about 11. So we've gone through this training for some of us. It's uh, a training we've done quite a number of times. This uh, training of being here for a week of inclining our hearts, our beings towards this quality of metta, of a kind of this active, expansive uh, friendliness. And we've uh, learned in various ways to um, bring that quality of metta to our experience, both in the formal practice and in the larger spirit of holding whatever occurs with metta. You know, I know from talking with many people that we've brought metta to uh, difficult emotions, to distress, to um, parts of our bodies when, when there was uh, pain or distress. We've brought, brought metta to um, a number of difficult people with various ramifications of that happening on that day. We learned how to learned how to uh, touch our own metta for ourselves. You know, I love I love this. There's a sweet collection of um, one-liners uh, from uh, children uh, who were asked, "What's the nature of love?" And this is one of them that Karen, age seven, gave, which is very nice in relationship to metta. When you love somebody your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> so, a contemporary philosopher of metta. So, um, and we know that we are moving into bringing the metta out of this, in a sense, protected and very special space. And how to do that? It's really, I think, in many ways, the challenge of having our deeper values, our practices alive in this very interesting, crazy, half-disintegrating, half-growing society (laughs) is a challenge. (laughs) Right? For all sorts of reasons, which I hardly need to mention, you know, probably the speed and the distractions are, uh, you know, as well as the uh, economic, interpersonal, 
challenges are, are quite strong. And yet for virtually all of us, this is the heart of where our practice is. We come here in a way for training. And then well-trained, we send you out. <laughs> we send ourselves out also, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and it is a challenge, it's difficult in a number of ways. And yet, I think so many of us have quite deep aspirations. Sometimes we think, well, the traditional, you know, if you were spiritually serious, you know, I don't know, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago, one would typically become a monk or nun. There are other traditions and other approaches, you know, in indigenous traditions, it's, it's different and it's more grounded in the culture. But, you know, in the world religions, one would become a monk or nun. And I think somehow there are many of us who have some of that same whatever, what we call it, spiritual intensity or passion, and yet it's going to be expressed in daily life. Somewhere between uh, that monk or nun and the traditional layperson, who is traditionally, not, not always, but usually seen as not quite so serious. You know, and there's, so there's a level of strong and even pure intention that I think that we, we, we know from, from us, that's there. And so how to manifest that? One of the ways that I reflect, or one of the main way that I really reflect or organize contemplating a daily life metta practice is by looking at three realms of our, of our lives really. The first is our individual practice. The second is our more relational practice our being with others, bringing metta into our lives with others. And the third is our lives, uh, is our life in the greater society. We might call it our, our participation in the larger society, in the, in the collective, in, you know, in the social, political, ecological, economic worlds. So I want to say um, some about all of those parts of our lives. Um, but first I just want to say a little bit about the transition from the retreat into our daily lives. And it's really important, we say this over and over again. Um, If you've been to our retreats, you've heard people say something to the effect of, you are very wide open and you don't know how wide open you are. And that's uh, true. And it means to uh, have some care have some care in the next period of time. If you can have some quiet time, if that's possible for you, it's kind of nice to finish on a Friday. Hopefully it gives some options for not going right back to work. Sometimes we finish retreats on Sundays and it's harder for a lot of people. So if you have an option of uh, being more quiet for some time, having some sittings, uh, keeping the momentum of the retreat going is very precious if one can do that in, in whatever way makes sense to you. Um, not to hold on to particular states of mind, particular levels of concentration. Unless you do a few hours a day of practice, those will, those will shift. And so not to, not to grasp onto the retreat I know I was told that all the time, and I grasped onto the retreat, onto my retreats, and it's a little bit inevitable because it's 
Um, for most of us, there are a lot of uh, moments of, even if there was some struggle or difficulty, there was a lot of depth of insight or feeling certain levels maybe of calm or peacefulness or insight. And it's very, very precious and that should really be, be valued. But somehow not to hold on to it, to know that it changes, not to hold on to a particular state, but to, um, to keep the momentum of the retreat going and to say, I want to have a more, uh, what, a little more active schedule of sittings in the next few days or the next week. That's not grasping. <laughs> have the spirit rock seal of approval <laughs> for, for that. So um, also very helpful to know when you meet family and friends that not everyone will be as interested in your retreat as you are. (laughs) Many, perhaps most, perhaps nearly all will be satisfied with one line, (laughs) such as, it went pretty well. (laughs) Remember that. It's important. And, and be a little bit careful about just uh, talking a whole lot when you get home. And really just keep on tuning in to what your body, your mind, your heart is telling you is appropriate right now, especially in the next few days. Again, tr- valuable always, but the next few days we are, we're, we're a little more vulnerable. So a few words on uh, daily practice and individual practice. And then I'll talk more about our metta with others and uh, metta in the world. A lot of people, including myself at times, have been inspired after a metta retreat to keep on doing metta. And it's fine to have to only do metta for the near future. I've done that after some metta retreats. And it can really keep the momentum going. Um, so that's um, one option. And, but to have the metta stay at a level of strength, it's really important to do it regularly. You know, 10, 15 minutes a day for many people, maybe most people, constitutes regularity, enough to really keep with the metta energy and flow. Because I think we mostly know we do it 10 or 15 minutes a day and we find ourselves at other times it comes up, you know. At other times, uh, maybe in a meeting or uh, waiting for a bus or, you know, other public transportation. And then the, the metta comes right there. And I'll talk more about actual ways of doing that, but it can be right there. So some people like to have half mindfulness, half metta, or do metta at the end of a sitting. Uh, that's fine. Uh, all those are good options. Um, to do metta regularly for a longer time can be really beautiful. So one, uh, one option is to form a metta sitting group with your friends. There was, I know there was one formed about seven or eight years ago by uh, Anne Salisbury, which met for a number of years in the East Bay in the Berkeley, Oakland area. And they met once a month and did a few hours of metta and a potluck on a Sunday morning. It was a beautiful idea. And it really supported a lot of people's metta practice. And 
one of our retreatants has volunteered to organize something like that. Um, Jim Becker, who is in the corner here, you can raise your hand if you want to talk with him after the retreat. And he has a sign-up sheet on the bulletin board if you're interested in at least knowing about, right? Just to know about the possibility of having with, with, I guess, the hours and days or what you're doing to be determined, but people who'd like to come together in the practice of metta. And it doesn't have to be a large group. It can, you know, a group of five or ten can be wonderful. You know, I've done very meaningful small groups with three people, which have lasted. And so uh, that can really work. You know, to find one or two other people who like to do it can be really beautiful. One practice that I've been doing regularly for a long time is a Sabbath practice, uh, old tradition, you know, West and East, to have a day where you do part of a day or all of a day uh, and get away from the media, the, the electronics and so forth and, do, and go into something that's a little bit like the retreat environment. It can be three hours. I've had people I've worked with have one person does it Friday afternoon from two to six every week. You know, I guess it's very much like the traditional model of going to church on a Sunday morning to give a few hours for practice. You can do this on your own. It really makes a huge difference. And, you know, the Sabbath, the way it's been intended over thousands of years, becomes the pivot of one's week. It's quite, quite something. As Sylvie was saying uh, last night, uh, metta practice is both a formal practice and it's really a way of being in the world. And it's really that way of being which says, where is my heart right now? Where is my awakened heart? Where is my level of care right now? And it really is that remembering to incline moment by moment or to bring it to certain situations. And maybe like many of us know here, the metta is a formal practice, but there was a lot in the way. How do we hold our being at the retreat? There's also that spirit of metta. How do I, how do I hold the fact that I'm tired today or that I didn't sleep well? It's the spirit of metta that we bring to that, to whatever is happening. One of the powerful potentials of metta practice, as has been mentioned, is to be there when there's distress. You know, to... Uh, be a way of holding distress and at times when the distress is a lot and the metta is strong, it can shift the energy. You know, it's, I, I like to think of, you know, those moments when something difficult may have happened and, there's, and distress comes in, in whatever form, fear or anxiety or self-judgment or whatever. And at times when it feels way too strong, to be just mindful of. It could be the middle of the night, you know, anxiety arises, one wakes up and, you know, and what do you do in those circumstances? Metta, to the rescue. (laughs) 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 That, um, you can imagine metta coming with a cape or something. You know, if you wish, but it really, it has that power, partly because it's concentration and you're repeating phrases. It really has the power to shift energy. It's really valuable to help shift the energy 
when there are very strong judgments or there's fear or there's anxiety. Um, and to really, to really notice that. Um, there is a way in which we can also uh, you know, just bring that to hold what's, uh, what's difficult in our experience, to hold the pain with metta. You know, I was, uh, and we can remember that way that metta is a, uh, had its source as a meeting, a, a, a meeting of fear. And uh, I had a dream three nights ago, which uh, really related to this. It was quite interesting. And since others have been disclosing dreams, um, I, wanted, I thought I'd share this. You know, this, it was an interesting dream, and it really was a dream about how metta meets fear. And I'll just repeat the dream as I wrote it down. It was kind of interesting. I mean, it's powerful. I was talking with people who were afraid of the future. And I asked them, what are you afraid of? Loss, violence, horror. And the being in my dream, who was me, said, I'm not afraid of any of these. Loss, violence, horror, I'm not afraid of any of these. At that point, I saw that the others were not afraid, and we proceeded. And of course, that was a dream voice, you know, and it's not to say, like, that I don't get afraid. Of course not. But there's something there that gets strengthened, maybe. maybe I don't want to get into interpreting it, but there was something that was fearless in that dream. And, and metta does build that. Metta builds that quality of fearlessness. In addition to metta, practice formally or holding that energy to do that which gladdens the heart. This is a phrase which I, I've learned, Heather likes to use that a lot, and I've learned more to use that, the, that sense of what gladdens the heart to, and it's really also a way that we express, can really um, bring, bring out metta, to do other practices like forgiveness or the gratitude practice or joy or to be with beauty, to be with, um, to be, uh, with the natural world. This will all really connect with the opening of the heart, you know, um, after my long five-week uh, meta retreat, I was um, supposed to be uh, finishing the book that's out there on the table, you know, The Engaged Spiritual Life. I had a deadline. And after five weeks of metta, when I went back to my home, all I wanted to do was interior decoration. <laughs> Interesting phrase, isn't it? I think, what is metta practice other than interior decoration? <laughs> And I talked to my editor and I got an extension and I just focused on interior decoration after the meditation. I think the book came out better. (laughs) So uh, all of that's really, really helpful. And of course, we can bring metta practice into our relationships. So this second broad area, that's really, really crucial. And... You know, I've I've sometimes thought that it'd be interesting, and maybe we'll talk together as a team, to have have the metta retreat actually have more of an interpersonal component. might be interesting 
you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe we do nine days and the last two days we focus on metta in an interpersonal context. You know, it would be quite interesting. And, and I, I've talked with one or two of you about that, you know, about that interest, because some, you know, some people want to be able to express that warmth and kindness in just walking with eyes looking at the gravel. Uh, sometimes it doesn't do it for everyone. <laughs> you know, so, um, so a few words about uh, metta in a relational context. Um, metta is really supported by the ethical precepts. We've wanted to interpret the ethical precepts in the context of metta. So a firm commitment and renewal of the ethical precepts really links with, with metta. You know, the ethical precepts are essentially about strengthening our commitment not to harm ourselves or others. And really, really important. There's, there's a beautiful line in the uh, teachings of the Buddha where he says, I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will not harm another. It's a connection of metta and non-harming. It's very, I found that a very powerful statement. And I could say a lot more about how the roots of a lot of our social ills are in people who are in pain and are not in touch with their own goodness and beauty because often, usually because of conditions which were just too hard and painful. And that there's a way in which a lack of self-love created by conditions is a huge root of social problems. Of course, our close relationships are wonderful training grounds for metta. We are these diamonds in the rough who rub up against each other. And we rub, and the metta gets better, but there's a lot of sparks. Right? And we can, of course, take that, you know, take those close relationships at work, family, uh, intimate relationships, and so forth, to really bring out the metta more. You know, and I think one of the great areas to focus on is when, is when there are challenges. When I have a conflict, can I have metta? This is sort of advanced practice. <laughs> you know, it's an extension of the difficult person practice. When I'm with a difficult person, can I have the heart of metta? You know, actually, very simply, can I have empathy for the other with whom I'm in a difficult situation? It's not so easy. But the intention to be empathic is really crucial. And it, it, it comes out of that insight that Heather Sundberg talked about, that typically our reactivity is driven by pain, often unacknowledged. You know? And so if we actually can be empathic and know what's beneath someone's behavior, which is not easy to have that metta and that compassion, it can really be... Um, a tremendous practice. And so we can actually sometimes, if we feel, if we feel it's appropriate, we can take challenges and relationships as a starting point for metta. Kind of advanced practice, but very, very powerful to say, oh, I'm having a difficulty. Time for my practice to arise. Time for metta to arise. One could do that. Uh, Shanti Deva from the 8th century says, just like a treasure appearing 
unbidden in my home, I should be happy to have a difficult person for that person assist me in my conduct of awakening. It's from the uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, chapter six on patience. <laughs> and so we can, bring, we can bring that quality of metta into our speech. We can work with metta in our communications. Uh, some of you know this story, but um, uh, at the end of that long retreat, I had some business to take care of and I downloaded um, end of five weeks, I downloaded five weeks of emails and was still at the retreat. And I'd been doing metaphrases for five weeks and so what else could I do but answer emails with metaphrases (laughs) not stopping. And it evolved a practice which has been going on for about six years of doing meta practice with every email. Sylvia wrote about it, I think, in the Shambhala Sun. <laughs> I publicized it. But I, what I typically do is I would, I stop for a moment, I go through four phrases, sometimes quickly, but I go through them. And then I try to bring something like the spirit of metta into the body of the email. I often say something, I hope you're well, and or I try to vary it with people I communicate a lot with. So... It's not too obnoxious. And I get a lot of emails back now saying, I hope you're well. I say, oh my God. <laughs> not really. Uh, but but it's, it's, um, I, think it, it's, I think we all have that kind of natural creativity. How do we bring metta into our lives? We, we can do that. We can do metta. Metta is this practice we can really do well in a lot of the circumstances. We don't need a really quiet, protected place. You can do metta, public transportation, I have quite a few students who do metta primarily when they're driving. Don't get too concentrated, but can really, really, it's really needed. Really, we, can do, we can do it in meetings. You know, we can do it in public spaces. Just can do the metta for all beings. It really is quite something. So a few words about bringing metta into the, into the larger world. Uh, I think we know the energy and spirit of metta is really, really needed. And all of us will bring that into our work, our participation in the larger world. I wanted to tell a story, and I may, I may end with this. I'll see, see the timing. Um, that, that I first heard from my mother. Uh, it's about a, a woman named uh, Shirley Chisholm. And it's one of my favorite stories. I think some of you probably have heard it because I think I've told it a few years ago. Um, Shirley Chisholm died a few years ago. That's when my mother told me the story. She was a congresswoman from Brooklyn. And uh, I got to know her some because when I was a college student, I worked in the U.S. Congress for a summer. And she was very small, about four foot ten, And she was the first African-American to run for president. I I believe the first woman as well. Uh, 1972. There was a film made of her life uh, a few years ago. Um, During during the presidential campaign, uh, one of the other candidates was George Wallace. 
who was at that time, I don't know if he was still governor of Alabama, but he had been governor of Alabama and was um, you know, very staunchly against the civil rights movement. And um, you know, I think he later would say in his life he was, he was flat out racist, basically. And um, he was part of that campaign in 1972. And during that campaign, there was an assassination attempt um, against Wallace. And he wasn't killed, but he was badly injured. And right away, um, Shirley Chisholm went to visit him in the hospital. And his first... His first remark seeing her was, your people aren't going to like that you're here. Uh, Her response was, um, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. I don't know more of the dialogue that occurred, but I think there was was a lot of impact from that. I think about, um, I know about two years later, she was um, co-sponsoring a minimum wage bill and she needed help to get it through the Congress and she um, received a lot of help from George Wallace. He connected with a lot of Southern Congress people and they supported it and it got through. I think later, many of you know, he repudiated what he called his racist past. It's hard, it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to know the impact. But I, I understand that moment. And... Um, her response is full of metta. So I could say more, but um, um, the world needs metta. Mm, small moments can have a big impact. Mm, so that's all. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.